Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Before last, I was at the, the very excellent Independent Publishers Guild conference, um, which is ten minutes down the road from where I live. Which publishers would uh, members of the public were they permitted to attend such an event? Which publishers would they expect to find there? I don't know. We, we oddly enough, we're we're unbound to remember. Although, so like Serpent's, ta- Serpent's Tale, I don't know. No, I Serpent's Tale, but I don't know. No. Faber are, I think. And then we've you probably have. I don't know. They're nice, good, you know, lots of very small um, search press, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I mean, lots of, it's a very, very jolly room yeah. of people who've been going forever. And um, I just had to do it. I had to tell a few stories, Andy, you know, but I, I told the great um, Waterstone's Guide to Books story, you know, produced a, produced a mail order catalogue that was an inch and a half too big for the average British mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> I st- we we me- many of us still have our copies. The, um, the grey order forms. Do you remember that? Were, yeah, I do remember the grey order forms. When they were faxed to the mail order department, <laughs> nobody could read what <laughs> thousands of orders coming in. Nobody had any idea what they were. I'd, and then I told I told a few um, a few of my as you know I like to tell the the, the stories that backlisted listeners may hear in a forthcoming um, forthcoming podcast if it all comes off. Uh, stories of Neil Aspinall and the Beatles. Um, should we start? Yeah, please, <laughs> please, please get on with it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. We're gathered cosily around the paint-splattered kitchen table in the ramshackle riverside shed of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today is Max Porter. Hello, Max. Hello. Yes, <laughs> He's hello, there. Max. Sorry, I had a very, very, very happy to have you here. Hello. Um, Max published his debut book, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, in 2015, which was shortlisted for more awards than we could count, although he's showing us on his hands. <laughs> now, that's, that's a lot. I'm amazed you've got that many fingers. Yeah. The, the Grief is a Thing with uh, Feathers earned him the uh, uh, awarded Sunday Times Young Author of the Year. Max is also editorial director at Grant Books, and uh, he's another member of the Masonic group known simply as ex-booksellers. So which, which bookshop did you work for? Daunt's. A branch of Daunt's? Yeah, I did two new branches of Daunt's, one in Holland Park and one in the old Pan Bookshop site ah, yes, Road. Pan, yeah, the Pan Bookshop. Had, Run a very, by. had a very happy time. What, uh, what tended to sell in Daunt's in Holland Park? 
When you looked at oh, a, a reviews page, Polish poems. Uh, <laughs> we we had it. We th- those were the golden days, as far as I was concerned. You know that where where you would get the nuclear family, the well-heeled nuclear family, buying yeah, yeah, yeah. a book per family member, so the kids would would get a book each. The mum would get a, a novel and a, and a cookbook, and dad would buy. Michael Gove would buy a, a, <laughs> yeah. a, a history. Of, yeah. Pit the Younger. She probably voted Pit the Younger, didn't he? Anyway, uh, that was good. But it being London, I loved that roll of the dice. That um, one minute you get Harold Pinter to come in and give me a hard time that we aren't stopping his plays. <laughs> um, yeah. God rest his angry soul. You know, yeah, and the yeah. ne- and next minute a builder who buys his you know one crime novel a week and really, really cares that you get it right. So I, I love I love that. I miss it. I worked down in Kensington High Street. Yeah. And we Still used to find one. that telegraph readers were the ones who would read the papers and buy books. Yeah, no, they're, right? they're off the Times, page. Yeah. Times readers would come in mm. and buy the books by their friends. Mm. Telegraph readers would come in and buy the books that were reviewed, mm. and Guardian readers would come in and look at the books and then not buy them. Yeah. <laughs> that was our general experience. Yeah. I can't, I'm not sure that would be true everywhere. Send, it was true in Kensington. Send whinging letters to you afterwards about your, the, 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 the range of stock that you had in the store. That did occur, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Diane and Rig used to come in quite frequently, nod at whoever was at the downstairs mm. till, find her book place it face out on the front shelves and yeah. table and then leave. <laughs> That's the thing about London, so many people came in and it was a brilliant who's who of it. And you can judge an author by how they behave in a bookshop. Jonathan Coe, for example, perfect gentleman. Perfect mm, gentleman. Mm. Anita Bruckner wins the prize. Never once announced that she was Anita Bruckner. I happen to know her so I could have the chat. She'd be mortified if you said, can you sign a book? That would not be brilliant. That I mean, would not be the so, done thing. That listed listeners will know that I, I've, I've just got very excited at the at the fact that someone other than me introduced an Anita Brookner anecdote to the podcast. I was just going to go off. You went about in her afterwards. flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we should say that the book the book that Max has come in to talk about is a novel called The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey. And Max and I met at Thing last year and I mentioned about Batlist and I said, is there, you know, if you would like to come on and talk, is there a book? And you said, immediately. I rushed it. The Horse's Mouth. There's so many I'd want to talk about, but the the Horse's Mouth is the one that that gushes forth. Well, we're very glad that you did and uh, we should should go on to that in a moment. But I should start with asking a question that we always ask, Andy. What have you been reading? This week, I've been reading another book republished by Persephone. Persephone republished this about 10 years ago. It's called Doreen. It's a novel called Doreen by a writer called Barbara Noble. And it was published shortly after the... Yeah, 1946. It was published shortly after the Second World War by William Heinemann. And it's a novel about the evacuation of children during the Second World War, the effect on their parents, the effect on the families to whom they were evacuated, with whom they were evacuated, and the effects on the children themselves. And I bought it before Christmas as a present for my mum, who is in her 80s, whose name is Dory. Now, my mum and I, as anyone who's read Year of Ring, Don't She Will Know, we don't really see eye to eye about books. And she is much more of an Alan Titchmarsh reader than she is anything else. She loves Alan Titchmarsh. She often tells me that I need to be more like him in order to be more successful as a writer, which is undoubtedly true. Um, and uh, so you've got, it, you've got a nice cardi. I have got a nice cardi, yes, and I've got a cheerful manner. Um, uh, but amen. Uh, amen. <laughs> so, but me buying her this book was a not insignificant gesture. Mm. 
I thought, well, you know, it's called Doreen, she's called Doreen. She wasn't evacuated during the war, but she did move around a lot during the war. So I gave this book a Christmas. She rang me up two days after Boxing Day and said, Andrew, not Andy, <laughs> Andrew, I can't put this book down. It is absolutely wonderful. It's so evocative of what it was like for me as a child being moved around from family to family while your gran went to, was basically moved from one munitions factory to another munitions factory. And my mum spent a lot of time not living with her mum. And uh, my grandfather was away in the military police uh, in the desert. So, so she had a kind of quite stressful existence from the ages of 8 to 15. And um, the, the crucial li- years. The little girl Dorian in this book is 10. The thing that's really, and the word is correct, remarkable, worth remarking on <laughs> in this book. Nice distinction. Is Thank you. the extent to which Barbara Noble absolutely brilliantly is able to show you how the 10 year old child can see things mm. but not process them. So the information that you're being given is constantly shifting mm. based on what little Doreen can deal with. The is, other thing that's is, worth saying about isn't it... that yeah, one of the great theories about why so many novels are set in... You know, are, are not just buildings Roman, but set in childhood because of that ability to deliver... Because children don't process. Mm. They don't make sense of... In, 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 but they're fantastically if you want to capture the, the sensual reality of something, doing it through a child narrator sometimes is easier than doing it through a hyper articulate kind of middle aged yeah. I think, it, I think it, it does because it precisely coincides with that unique ability yeah. that the novel has to allow its reader to intuit things that aren't necessarily on the page and, yeah, and, yeah, and if yeah. you, have, you know like the go-between that the go-between works because of what the adult yeah. reader brings to it so it's that space. gap yeah. between the, yeah. I mean I, anyone who enjoyed we did um, a few episodes ago we did a book by Jane Garden called A Long Way From Verona who, which similarly has a, mm. a 12 year old narrator similarly one could say it has his wartime setting has many of the same features that this book does um, Dorian by Barbara Noble um, and I think if you enjoyed, if you've read Long Way from Verona, oh, a, you yeah, would enjoy a, this. That's a great um, you know, Jane Gardner is huge in Germany. Now. Amazing. I said to someone in Germany, like, like Frankfurt, what, what's big right now? And they went, oh, Jane Gardner is huge. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, Good. I love that. It's a strange thing. I'll tell you who else is huge in Germany. Virginia Ironside, who oh, writes yeah. sort of columns about ageing for mm. the oldie. Mm. Just going back to this book very briefly, the thing about, about the novel Doreen by Barbara Noble, which is brilliant, we'll read you a tiny bit. Oh, yeah. She's so good. As someone who's grown up for, over the last 50 years listening to different people say my mum's name, uh. it's brilliant at placing how different classes of people say the name Doreen. Right. We say, in our family, Doreen. We think that's neutral. Doreen is quite working class... Doreen is quite faux upper. Mm. Well, right. It's so weird because my, my, you couldn't get a more working class woman than my aunt or auntie, me auntie Doreen, who's from Ashton in Makerfield. Well, she was from Ashton in Makerfield. She's sadly dead now, but my mother's sister. And she was definitely, very definitely Doreen, <laughs> our Doreen. So I just, there's a little bit here which, which sums up the two things I was just talking about. So um, Doreen is out for a walk. At the Osborne's gate, 
The Warmans and Doreen parted. For a moment she looked after them as they straggled down the hill and then she turned away and began to walk along the drive, her eyes fixed with proprietary pride on the fat bunch of primroses she carried in both hands. She didn't see the soldier leaning against the trunk of a tree until he made her jump by speaking to her. Hello, Doreen, he said in a quiet, almost sleepy voice. He pronounced her name as her mother did, with the accent on the first syllable. She noticed it behind her startled apprehension. Don't you remember me? He straightened himself and moved towards her slowly, hesitatingly. I'm your daddy, Doreen. You remember me? His voice was pleading. My daddy's not a soldier, Doreen whispered, but she was unconvinced by her own doubts. I live with Mr and Mrs Osborne now, she said. I I like it here. He glanced round him then, as if remembering for the first time where they were. I know they're sore. I talked to Mr Osborne. His tone was resentfully contemptuous. He means well, but he likes to interfere too much. You'll be well shut of them, I reckon. Doreen's mouth grew dry with terror. Are you going to take me away, she whispered. He laughed, good-tempered again, releasing her shoulder and putting his hands in his pockets. Where'd I take you? Back to camp? I'm a soldier now, though I didn't used to be. Look! He took off his cap and knelt on one knee, bringing his face on a level with hers. You remember me now, don't you? I used to give you toffees of a Saturday. His breath smelt queer and distasteful. Instinctively, she backed away a little. But it was true that she remembered him. Um, it's really... I, I, I can't recommend this highly enough. Uh, it's uh, one of these wonderful books that Persephone bring back, which is just sitting there she quietly. Mm. Did she write, um, write anything else? Um, I, I don't think she did. I don't think she did. Someone can correct me on that, yeah. but there's nothing else in print. No journal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> uh, so, John, that's what I've been reading. What have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading something uh, uh, shocking, not quite as contemporary as you think it is. It's a book called Dark Money by Jane. Mayer, who is a, uh, one of the ace kind of investigative reporters working for The New Yorker. Uh, the subtitle is How a Secretive Group of Billionaires is Trying to Buy Political tr- Control in the US, <laughs> which tells you pretty much everything you yep. need to know, except that it is a, it's a brilliant bit of forensic journalism, I think. I mean, it just she's very, very good at doing that, getting under the, under the skin. And it's a terrifying... Uh, or inspiring story, depending when from was your, this your, your. When was it, it was first published, published? It was published a year ago. It was 2016, so it's, yeah. it was it was a year ago that I was first yeah. vaguely aware of it. The reason I read it was I bumped into uh, Peter York, the style uh, kind of aficionado, and he, and he was saying that Trump was really just a, a kind of a useful idiot, a, a front for you know an extraordinary cabal of, bil- of American billionaires, of which the Coke brothers, that's how they pronounce their name, uh-huh. uh, Coke Industries, which is the second largest privately owned company in America, uh, including the brands of Lycra and Stainmaster. But they, uh, they were oil, oil refiners and chemicals. Their father, Fred Coke, um, cut his teeth making oil for Stalin and then went on to found Winkler Coke, which uh, p- supplied all the fuel for the Luftwaffe through the Second World War. So his da- their dad was an out-and-out Nazi. They're merely extremely, extremely libertarian right-wing. Libertarian. Uh, they were described by William Buckley, famous uh, conservative icon, as anarcho-totalitarians. So they are extreme <laughs> right-wing. They are extreme libertarians. And they have ploughed, I mean, some incalculable amounts of money not just into 
funding uh, political parties and candidates, although they've done that. Um, one of the two brothers, David, ran for vice president in 1980 yeah. and was completely obliterated. But since then, they've basically waged a, a sort of a war of ideas. I'll just read you a little bit. It gives you the sort of flavour. They've subsidised networks of seemingly unconnected think tanks and academic programmes and spawned advocacy groups to make their arguments in the national political debate. They hired lobbyists to push their interests in Congress and operatives to create synthetic grassroots groups to give their movement political momentum on the ground. They financed legal groups, judicial junkets to press their cases in the courts. Eventually, they added to this a private political machine that rivaled and threatened to subsume the entire Republican Party. So what you've got is a kind of completely separate almost sort of private, privately run, privately controlled political force in American political life that goes a long way to explaining mm. the, rise, well, the rise of Trump. I the was success re- of Trump, and this, this thing that we find it almost impossible to understand is how can billionaires uh, be seen as the sort of the poster boys of a grass, grassroots, blue-collar... Mm. You know, um, American Revolution, and a lot of the answers are in this book. It's a sort of, it kind of, you know, I know that essential reading tag gets gets, but if you want to understand modern, modern American politics, I mean, you know, these. So I've got a question. If I were to read this book, would it manage my anxiety uh, by providing me with information, or would it increase my anxiety about the future? Well, I always feel it's a good question. I always feel it's good to be informed, but it is a pretty depressing book. I mean, it's depressing because mm. I'm thinking of Bernard Hill playing Theoden the King in Lord of the Rings. What, <laughs> what can we do against such reckless hate? Well, I mean, what can we do against such reckless profligacy? What, mm. How can you win against people that's, who've got... So they have bought, you know, that's like, the votes of, yeah, yeah. of, of poor working-class people by, by feeding back to them the message that they want to hear without having any intention of really bringing jobs back to middle America. You it's a robbery. It's, it is. It's, 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 it's a, a con job on a massive scale. You mentioned Lord of the Rings. There's a very good line in a piece that Frankie Boyle had in The Guardian yesterday, <laughs> saying that, which is a brilliant piece. If anyone has listened to this hasn't read it, go and find it. It's superb. Line for line, it's super. He said, you know, Trump's next big project is to erect a burning eye above Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> I think that somebody had, pho- had photoshopped that. <laughs> Yeah. But um, just on that, the discovery this week of, of Donald the Unready Twitter account has yes. been, been one He's of the great... superb. No, Canute, weak king. <laughs> um, We're going to be so tough on the sea. Sorry, what, John, just recap for people. What is that book It's called, called Dark Money uh, by Jane Mayer. It's published in the UK uh, by Scribe. And the, the subtitle... Uh, Naomi Klein, Klein on the cover calls it utterly brilliant and chilling. It's been pretty much... Uh, given triumphantly good reviews. Because yeah, yeah. just in terms of... I mean, it's just very, very... It's well-written. It's very, very, very exhaustively in the, in the full American fact-checking mm. style yeah. It's very, very well put together. You, Granter publishes... You, as the publisher of Granter, you publish Barbara Ehrenreich, don't you? You do. And also, more, perhaps more explicitly, more chillingly relevant to this, is we publish Masha Gessen, whose yeah. analysis of, of, of how an autocracy shores itself up and how it draws from the past and, and, and with, with, with religion and with trade and with the, it's the parallels are absolutely extraordinary especially for, I mean for our industry especially the the way a state machinery like that handles its intellectuals handles its I mean there's, there's some pretty terrifying their nanny was such a Nazi 
brothers were growing up. Yeah, she, I saw that. She moved back to Germany. <laughs> during right? the yeah. war. She yeah, grew, yeah. Once they'd taken Paris, she said, I'm going back, I'm going home. It was a fatherland. I'm missing this incredible yeah. party back yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> and, party, uh, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, and then the, the, apparently their father, Fred, just took over by sort of literally, he would beat them with sort of sticks. And they were, I mean, it, the, the, again, it's that sort of troubling spectre of white supremacism that's there, you mm-hmm. know, when it's always that thing that, you know, dog, dog whistles or whatever, but, you know, when you, they're talking about white, when they're talking about Christian, what they're really talking about is white. white. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the horse's mouth, and in your capacity, Max, as mm. editorial director of Granta, um, we did, um, Rachel Cook came onto Batlisted last year, and we did a Grant book um, which we all love, uh, which many of our listeners have subsequently discovered and love, called All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. And we have an opportunity to tell people that that book is coming back to into print. Is that right? We will do it. I can't actually tell you when we're going to do it, but we're going to do it probably this year. That, that, is, that, is, that is an exclusive. It's happening. That is genuinely amazing. Yeah. It's fantastic, isn't What's it? What's in the fantastic thing? It's an incredible book. And, and any publisher can go into their archive and look and see incredible books that have got lost, but some of them you have to make a case of bringing back, and you, you have been instrumental in that, you and Rachel. But I think uh, reading that book now, it's a, as a style piece and as, as a piece of analytical writing about about the writer's mind and yeah. about the British mentality, Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's a classic. It's, 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 Definitively a classic, so we need it in print. You were t- you were saying before we started recording that you were that you were looking for you had been hunting for the the manuscripts. Yeah, and you didn't find it, but you found something else, which is amazing. We found a load of stuff, and the most extraordinary thing we found is the Jack of Jumps manuscript. It's the handwritten in blue biro manuscript of Jack of Jumps in its entirety. Jack without, of Jumps is Seabrook. I should remind Jack of Jumps is Seabrook's. Second, Second book, book about the Jack the Stripper mm. murders, yeah. but you found the a handwritten manuscript without a single error. There's there's one word crossed out, but other than that, it's completely pure, delivered to his editor like that. Met hundreds of hours of, of handwriting, and I suspect, intuiting a bit from what you've discovered mm. and what other people have said about Seabrook, it probably that's how he wrote. Mm. He wrote in that kind of torturous word-by-word word way, but it's quite a thing to see on the, the page. S- the sense that I get, um, I subsequently to doing that episode, we um, took part in a, an event, a public reading of All the Devils Are Here mm. from cover to cover, which Ian Sinclair was present at. And Ian Sinclair said that what he, he first encountered Seabrook because Seabrook would come to the um, second-hand bookstore that he ran in mm. uh, Upper Angel here when there was a, a kind of... Um, series of antiques shops and, and the bookstore and Seabrook would say Seabrook would come up to him and monologue at him for half an hour at a time on subjects which subsequently he said when I read the manuscript of All the Devils Were Here it was, it was his monologue Absolutely. That, that he had yeah. written down and clearly in Blue Byro <laughs> that he had good to go yeah. and, were, and, and there they all were Amazing. so he had worked everything out in his mm, head, you mm, know. Mm. Um, so, um, yes. Speaking of um, that, brings us pow- nicely powerful intellectuals yeah. and, and yeah. problematic individuals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> things that are apparently stream of consciousness, but are in fact incredibly carefully crafted 
quite so. Calibrated intellectual games. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. So, The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey. Where did you first... Can you remember when you first discovered this book or how you felt when you first read it? Or I think I was as an art student and I was at a stuffy university doing art history and I was living in a damp basement in Brixton which had actually had rats and I was living with a beautiful Joyce Carey, uh, Gully Jimpson, who's the character in the book, type, type friend, who never, in the two years we lived in that flat, washed his towel. <laughs> it never even dried. He used to just pat himself down with this fetid rag every day. It, it, you know, he's one of my best fetid. friends. This is a lot of fetid in this book. But we smoked a lot of weed and we were quite depressed and we were quite disillusioned. And, and this, just, this book, I think I picked it up in the second-hand bookshop and it just, it just screamed into my life. It was such a relief because also if you think about the kind of tight-ass prose you're reading in contemporary fiction at that time, yeah. this it, this abandon, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. lusty, mm-hmm. bawdy, and and such. Um, I mean, it felt like reading a painting, and, and it felt very <laughs> difficult to read. And I liked books that are difficult to read, and it, it felt like a it felt like a secret thing I was discovering. And also because it was written about a London that has been t- tarmacked over, and a, and a kind of especially a kind of looseness between the class system that no longer exists you know you, you, this this drunk smelly guy just wandering into these <laughs> millionaires houses you know you can't live that way anymore Abusing but I kind them. of I, I, I wanted to live that way the coppers I, arriving yeah <laughs> I I've, I've wanted to read this book for ages Max and when you said that you wanted to do it I was so happy because I thought okay I'm gonna have a pretext for reading it and I've, it I've so read, good. I read it over the last <laughs> few uh, last week or so and I have to say, as I went along, I found it quite hard work, which I don't mind. Mm. But the last, by the time you come into the final straight, I was thinking, what a privilege to have read this, yeah. you know, and to be able to talk about it. It's one of my favourite things that we've ever done on here. Uh, and um, uh, uh, you said to me uh, the other day, you said a brilliant thing. You said, the last time I read it, I swore I wouldn't read it again. <laughs> yeah. You great. loved it so much, yeah, and you, yeah. but the anguish of it as well. You know, the the, yeah. the this man, the the centre of this book, is horrifying, isn't he? Yeah. On one level, he's he is the the unfettered, unfettered but unfettered, yeah, yeah, yeah. artistic ego, run amok. Mm. You know the the. The, if you, and if you're a writer or a creative person of any kind, it's, it's, it's slightly unsettling to read this mm. and see someone just whose selfishness yeah. is, and yet whose but perceptiveness very, He's, he's very, is also, very uh, honest about his uh, mm. selfishness, and he wasn't... I mean, that's one of the things I love about it, is it, you feel he has sort of... The story of how he started off as a clerk mm. and had a, you know grey job and wife and kids and then he just starts to he just starts to sketch mm. and some explosion goes off in his brain and suddenly this, he, he, you know, he can't stop, mm. he literally can't stop and he's just never stopped mm. and there's absolute n- main character has absolutely not a shred of self pity mm. I mean it's and just he's critical of it elsewhere which yeah. I love and he is, yeah, absolutely. And he's a phenomenally good psychologist as well. It's just, it's completely... I, I mean, I know what you mean about, about 
challenging in that it is the prose is is we'll have Re- some. it's relentless. It is, is relentless, relentless, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is also but you can't uh, skip because if you miss a sentence, you're missing some of the great sentences. Yeah, some I, of the great British sentences ever written. Yeah, I completely agree. I think some of the best. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think some of the best. <laughs> dis- I think some of the best descriptive yeah. passages I have ever read, and certainly one of the best books ever about painting. But I think you've got at one at one end of the scale, you've got. You know, we mentioned this earlier, the Dickens of Our Mutual Friend, which mm. I'm sure mm. was there somewhere in the background. At the other end, you've got, you've got kind of Mighty Boosh. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite... There's some fabulously It, it is a bit funny. Forty Towers. And yep. it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's like Karamazov if, it, like off screen, you know, when they all start dicking around, when, 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 when <laughs> Dostoevsky's not, not focusing on them. And some of the best... I mean, yeah. Coca... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal. I mean, what a character! But this is—that's th- why it's got under my skin so much. I think as a, as a, as, a, as getting something right is that that that, that you if you're compelled I, to make something, you could. You, I could mm. certainly see myself going back and reading it. Well, I, I, again, I, 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 just because also there's a he he has a and the dialogue through the book <laughs> is with Billy Blake, mm. William Blake, and it's set on the Thames and you know London. Mm. But he's the what I love about it. He he's reading. The hard, what I call hardcore Blake, the stuff that I've mm. forced myself to read because mm. I'm an idiot when I was at university, the long poems. Mm. Mm. And, that's, and it's punctuated with these long, undigested passages yeah. from Blake, <laughs> yeah. which I think might also be adding to your, uh, you know, chewy. No, of. I just, the chewy is fine. The chewy is fine. I, I sort of, I just feel, um, you know, we've done other books on Batlisted, which I can understand that you would engage with immediately and you mm. would, and, mm. and, and sure. they would carry you along, right? Muriel this, Spark, this is not. Mm. Yeah, this book requires you to lean into it mm. somewhat, mm. right? But that's fine. That's good. We, we thoroughly approve of that. Yeah, that's yeah. why we're here. I, I just am saying to people, you know, get ready. But, it, but the payback is oh. so superb, yeah. right? You know, I mean, um, it's a send-up as well, and you've got, you've yeah. got, you've got, you know, so that friendship of he has with the guy that then they discuss Spinoza, and, he, and, and, he, Spinoza and he's like wrestling with it all the way through. And in, in what like, does he call it? What he calls him the old death, old, death old Ben, or like, yeah. di- diamond death dealer <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Why do you call him that?" And he said, "I really, yeah. I, I have no idea why I call him yeah. that." But the, for, for readers, I think it's important to explain. He 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 ha- he, he wants to paint. He must paint. He isn't painting because he's he's a criminal. He's been in prison. Then he's got nowhere to paint, and then he's offended everyone. Then he's getting locked. But all the time. So even sitting here with you, he'd be like, "Oh, yes, oh, Andy. If I could just get you to sit like that, God. If I could just whip that. The, if I could just knock that nose into shape. Like the yeah, whole yeah. thing is is like Titian. I love it. Struggling to get back to the canvas because everything is painting. Everything yes, is like absolutely. when he walks through London, he's like, yeah. "Oh, yeah. stunning little bit the of blue descriptions there, of yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and also they're unceasing." That's yeah. what's so brilliant yeah. about it—that you feel yeah, the character like is orange. kind of <laughs> the character is being driven forward constantly by this thing that he can't yeah. suppress. Yeah. You know the way he looks at the yeah, world it, it, and then is trying to find expression of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to think of any novel I've read where life forces more. I mean, he yeah. is. Yeah, utterly, yeah. Golly Jimson is just because he's <laughs> he's 67 in this book, yeah. which is brilliant. And the the, the romance with uh, Sarah Mundy. Yes, Sarah Mundy yeah. is. <laughs> it's, it's, brill- it's brilliant. I, I think I loved it because I, I had a grand step grandpa who, who who wore, as I imagine Gully does, like like a mustard roll neck. Yeah. And he was he was about <laughs> ninety. This guy when I knew him, and, and he lived to be ancient. And he was a pornog- He was a he was a soft pornographer. He he did pin up girls, airbrushed pin up girls, and he used to say to me, "Come and look at my 
my, my drawers and he'd pull out his drawers and there'd be hundreds of photographs of all, the, all his neighbours. All the women that lived on his street would come and model for him. Brilliant. And, he, and he did calendars and he did sort of cigarette companies and everything like that. But he had this... this it, it was boardiness, it was, it was risque and he, he would play against political correctness the whole time. But ultimately it was exactly what you're saying. It was this, this extraordinary energy to make, to make images all the time. Every conversation he had was... I must, I must just tell you this as well, that, that the character of Gully Jimson... So Gully Jimson is he's a painter, he's a boozer, he, he punches people of either gender, he's... He, he's just he's out of jail. Try, he he breaks jail. windows, he steals stuff... Anyway, Stay, almost uncontrollably, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like a sort of Tourette's that and scene where he just he's just half inching snuff boxes. The yeah, great, yeah. the great Kirkdale books on Twitter. Yeah. When he saw that we were doing this, he said, "Oh, you know what? That's my dad's favourite book. Yeah. I've always been meaning to read it." Right, and so he was he was re- he was reading it, and he tweeted me, and he said, "Now I understand, my dad." Is Gully Jimson, right? <laughs> yeah. And then yesterday he tweeted me and said, and this is exactly what he said, and I'm quoting him directly. As promised, I spoke to my dad, Ree Horse's mouth. He said, trust me, the advice on how to throw a bottle is spot on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is to throw it like a yeah. dart, yeah. Yeah. not to throw yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say, you know, he's... I, I could now see, you know, what would Gully do? Would be a, would be a, would be a, <laughs> would Gully a thing. Because yeah, yeah. it's just he's his reaction in circumstances, yeah. the lack of self pity, because he's absolutely his poverty is constant throughout the book, isn't mm. it? Despite, kind yeah. of, despite the endless ridiculous schemes to try and extort. The way he cons people is so good because he, he does, he yeah. does, he does. Yeah. Like, if I give you twenty bob and you give me four yeah. gillings back and then I give you a pound and we just call and it quits. And then he does that, that reverse really? polarity thing and he says that. Oh, and then when somebody says no, which was a strong response. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he says, you, "You've done very well out of me." And then he just robbed them. It's brilliant. Before I'm going to ask Max, I'm going to ask you to read a bit in a minute. I'm just going to read the blurb on the back of this. Penguin Modern Classic. Penguin Modern Classic, which has a fantastic Stanley Spencer painting on the front. A detail from Desire by Stanley Spencer in the collection of Lady Walston, it says here. Um, so I'm just going to read the blurb so to, to help people just fix here. Um, the horse's mouth is a portrait of an artistic temperament. Its principal character, Gully Jimson, is an impoverished painter who bothers little about the customary obligations and decencies. <laughs> <laughs> but although he is a bad citizen, he is a good artist. We can debate that in a minute, everybody. He's a bad citizen. He's a good artist. So wholly preoccupied with his art that he is willing to endure any privation for its sake. Gully Jimson, however, is no self-conscious martyr. He is so wholly allergic to conventional values as to find a sardonic delight in flouting them. And the only morality he practices is the devotion he gives to painting. And then there's a quote... A wonderful quote from John Betjeman, where Betjeman said, Mr. Joyce Carey is an important and exciting writer. There's no doubt about that. To use Tennyson's phrase, he is a lord of language. If you like rich writing full of gusto and accurate original character drawing, you will get it from the horse's mouth. Mm. Mr. Carey is the right horse. <laughs> and I, I think that thing, I agree with John. But the thing I agree with Betjeman on there is um, I read another one of Carey's books, Mr. Johnson, hmm. um, which as well is, you know, pr- problematic, in, very problematic in some ways. But the thing that drives it is the thing that drives the horse's mouth, which is depth of character. 
You know how you were saying you've got to read everything, and if you miss a bit, you'll miss a brilliant sentence. Mm. You'll also miss... He buries plot. Yeah, yeah. Sentences, sentences... A sentence or two will contain a very significant bit of plot, yeah. which he then will expound upon via character for two or three paragraphs. Mm. Brilliantly, I it's think. It's incredibly carefully drawn. I was reading this interview with him where he, where he says that... Um, the greatest, the, the prettiest thing anyone ever said about the book was that it was, it felt improvised. And he said, how, you know, of all my books, this was the one I drafted again and again and again, seven or eight times. He clicked it all down mm, into places like, so carefully calibrated. Um, have you, have you got uh, a bit? As someone that writes now, I mean, I, I, I feel the urge to get back to writing, that ticklish, frustrating thing of like, oh, fuck, I wish I just had five minutes to get that down, or, you know, it's a bus ticket in my pocket and it's burning a hole in my pocket. I've got that, that, I, I cannot think of a book that gets that nails that better. I've got two bits. Shall I do one? Yeah, yeah please. Shall I do the, shall I, this, is, this gives you a good sense of it, I think. I've got to read it fast, because that's the only way you can read it. And I went out to get room for my grief. Thank God! It was a high sky on Green Bank, darker than I expected. But at the edge of the world was still a long way off, at least as far as Surrey. Surrey. Under the cloud bank. Some was in the bank. Streak of salmon below. Salmon trout above, soaking into wash blue river, whirling along so fast that its skin was pulled into wrinkles like silk dragged over the floor. Shot silk. Fresh breeze off the aisle. Sharp as spring frost. Ruffling under the silk like muscles in a nervous horse. Ruffling under my grief like ice and hot daggers. I should have liked to take myself in both hands and pull myself apart to spike my guts for being gully Jimson who, at 67 years of age, after 45 years of experience, could be put off his intentions, thoroughly bamboozled and floored by a sprout of dogma, a blind shepherd, a vegetated eye, a puffed-up adder of moralities, Ooh, girl going past, clinging to a young man's arm, putting up her face like a duck to the moon, drinking joy, green in her eyes, spinal curvature, no chin, mouth like a frog, young man like a pug, gazing down at his sweetie with the face of a saint, reading the words of God, hold on, maiden, you've got him, he's your boy. Look out, Puggy. That isn't a maiden you see before you. It's a work of imagination. Nail him, girly. Nail him to the contract. Fly, laddie. Fly off with your darling vision before she turns into a frow who spends all her life thinking of what the neighbours think. I mean, he could go on. <laughs> I've gone on red. Absolutely genius. And this is the one. I'm going to read this next bit, which is the bit that Andy said he wanted to read. Oh, you would fancied it. Yeah, quite this right. Is so, this, is, this is horse's mouth full flow. Hang on, I've gone all sweaty. Hang on. That's right, though. I want you to feel that, I'm, that in order to read... The horse's mouth adequately you have to like a bit of booze needs to come out of your skin. <laughs> so he's gone in. He's gone in to this flat where he, he, he's gonna he's gonna kind of try and get a, a commission, and then he's gonna he's then gonna end up causing all kinds of hell in this flat with a sculptor. I wasn't quite reassured until I saw the flat. Luckily, the beaters were out to tea, and I was able to look around. A real hall. A big studio with gallery, a little dining room off the studio, two bedrooms and chromium bathroom. Usual Persian rugs and antiques, vases, marbles, African gods, bloody bloody blah. Old portraits in the dining room, modern oils in the studio, drawings in the bedroom, watercolours in the hall. Usual modern collection. Wilson Steer, water in watercolour. Matthew Smith, victim of the crime in slaughter colour. Utrillo, whitewashed wall in mortar colour. Matisse, odalisque in scorter colour. Picasso, spatchcock horse in torter colour. Gilbert Spencer, cocks and pigs in thorter colour. Stanley Spencer, cottage garden in horter colour. Brack, half a bottle and half a porter colour. William Roberts, pipe dream in snorter colour. Wadsworth, roxes, blockses and fishy boxes, all done by self in nortor colour. Duncan Grant, landscape in strawter colour. Francis Hodgkins, cows and wows and frows and sows in chortle colour. Ruo, perishing saint in forter colour. Epstein, Leah waiting for Jacob in squatter colour. All the most high-toned and expensive. I can see your friends are rich people, I said. 
It's very misogynist. We should say that straight away. His uh, Gully's dislike of his violence towards women is is relentless. It's he yeah. doesn't know what. Uh, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Artistically, he knows what to do with women. Mm. In all other respects, he we're seeing somebody who is incapable of expressing himself in any other way. Um, I agree with you. It's quite disturbing to read. Just as Mr. Johnson is, you know, has race issues, which I think now you would. Couldn't print it. The thing about Mr. Johnson, which is set in colonial Africa, is that which um, he spent at Kerry himself. He did, yeah. It has like it, it has many of the same um, features as the mm. horse's mouth. It's all cut through character. It comes through character, um, but uh, and it's and in its own way, it's a great. It's another great book. Mm. But the thing that's so interesting about it is, uh, on one level, you can see now it would be very problematic. It is very problematic to read it, but I think even then it was quite problematic. It's the book, Mr. Johnston's the book that inspired Chimwara Chebi to mm. write Things Fall mm. Apart. Mm. Because he read it and thought, well, this isn't, this isn't my version of my, my country that I recognise at all, mm. whatever the, mm. the skill with which it's been done. But the opening oh. page of Mr. Johnston, he says, you there... I love the way your breasts are moving. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was, you know, I know it's, this is this is dangerous ground, but I think there is a that's amazing. In the way that, in the way, Gully's pretty offensive to everybody, really. I mean, he just doesn't have that. He has that sort of Blakeian mm. innocence in a way. I love this passage. I, I, I love this. This is the old. This is his old paramour, Sarah Monday, and uh, it's just. I think it's, it's just. It's a good. It's a good old people sex scene. Of which we seem to um, we seem to have a f- we, didn't we have one on the other week? Yes. Yeah. Can't remember what that was, but Muriel Spark. Exactly. Yeah. Don't say that, Sarah. I said, giving another squeeze and meaning it, for you couldn't help liking the old trout. The very way she was speaking, easy from her soul as a jug runs when you tilt it to a wet lip. It made me tingle all over. It made me laugh and sing in the calves of my legs. It made my toes curl and my fingers itch at the tops. It made me want to go bozo with the old rascal. What a woman. The old original, clear as a glass eye and straight as her own front. The very way she worked her great cook's hands, jointed like a lobster round a glass, and lulled her head on one side, turned up her eyes and heaved up her bosom when she sighed, enjoying the feel of herself inside her stays. It made me want to squeeze her till she squealed. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it's misogynistic, <laughs> but it's also... It's a good writing, so, yeah, but also yeah. it's full of it's full of lust yeah. and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're just gonna we're gonna lust com- is the thing, I think, yeah. we're gonna come on to the film in a minute. But just to say about Carey, so Carey was an Irish writer. Uh, he um, he wrote he wrote a book a year for like mm. twenty five years and was very uh, famous in his own time. He was yeah. on the cover of Time magazine. He was uh, uh, you know extremely well known. Sold a lot of books, widely reviewed. Mm. Uh, he is the subject of the seventh ever Paris Review interview. And uh, there's a little, I've got a little thing here about that, from that, where they ask him about the horse's mouth. And the interviewer says, and this is great, the interviewer says, you can depend around here on practically everyone having read the horse's mouth. <laughs> Do you think that's because it's less philosophical or just because it's a penguin? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and Carey replies... The horse's mouth is a very heavy piece of metaphysical writing. No, he's joking. They like it because it's funny. Mm. 
The French have detected the metaphysics and are fussing about the title. I want le tuyau incréable, the unbustable tip. They say this is unworthy of a philosophical work and too like a roman policier. I say, tant mieux. <laughs> so much the better. But they are unconvinced. I mean, he's seen, reading these interviews with him, he seems to have had quite a like relaxed attitude to being a man of letters. I don't know. So he, he, he didn't mind offending. I mean, I think he recognised, and I respect this so much now when writers are kind of renter gobs and, and, and then they say, you know, they get hanged a year later for something they said off the cuff at a festival or whatever. Um, I love this here. He says, you know, they go, they, people, people went into full philosophical flow so well. Even, you know, I mean, we joke about Trump and, and, and the squashing of, uh, of language down to yelps of hatred or capital letters, but God, people had, had good language. You know, this, so this is him just in a chat about the novel. <laughs> Any, anyone can deny the freedom of the mind. He can argue that our ideas are conditioned, but anyone who argues so must stop there. He must deny all freedom and say the world is simply an elaborate kind of clock. He must be a behaviourist. There's no alternative in logic between behaviourism, mechanism, and the personal God who is the soul of beauty, love, and truth. <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> novelists these days just trotting that out? And then the, then the interviewer says, how do you fit poetry into this? Because I heard you describe it as prose cut up, in, cut up into lines. Would you stick to that? And Joyce Carey says, did I say that? I must have been annoying someone. No, I wouldn't stick to it. It's <laughs> <laughs> excellent. There is so, a freedom, isn't there? There's a to- that's what I kind of I, I loved. In the, in the, we, we were having an interesting discussion about comedy and comic writing mm. and how mm-hmm. literary fiction has sort of abandoned. We, we came up with the, in, in the Amos mm. book, which mm. I have to say, there's, there's definitely, I don't know whether Amos read Carey, but you, there, are, there are bits of this that I think... That well, Kingsley certainly, certainly would have done. Yeah, yeah, must certainly. have done have you read? This is we should also. This is the third part of a trilogy, yeah. written from the perspectives of the different characters. So the first one is called "Herself Surprised." Mm. That's about Sarah Monday, right? And then to be a pilgrim. I don't know which character that's about. That's, right. that's separate. That's unrelated. But it forms a trilogy in his mind. Right, it's, right. It's, it's about it's about frustration. And so, and, have you read those other? I read "Herself Surprised" years ago, and it's an MYRB classic. I don't know whether these the other two are. Um, I remember li- I remember liking it, but finding it not 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 as not comparable to the horse's mouth in yeah. terms of pure pure. I, th- gust, I think the pure, point the point is you don't need to read the first two to read oh, this. No. Exactly. Jimson's read, voice is the thing, isn't it? Yes. It's yeah. just a, it's I read a thing about I read a novel by him of a, a rural Irish childhood. It's called wow. a, it's called a quiet. I can't remember what it's called. A quiet child. I thought it was a memoir, basically a novel. Thing. Beautiful book, but all, yeah. all, I mean, almost like early John McGahn, really yeah. um, surprising. I mean, I think he was very versatile. I think he's one of those novelists that never quite decided what he was doing, had a huge brain and a great appetite to write. I mean, some of the best things in this book of interviews, I should say, I, I noticed on my way here this afternoon, this, this selected essays of Joyce Carey, I opened it up and the Ex Libris sticker in the front is Barry Humphreys. Is that's just ex? Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah. We, it must be the Barry Humphreys as well. Look at it. Yeah, it's really absolutely good. brilliant little yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Um, so he's also got some great arguments against being an artist. The, the very Dickensian boy with the stutter, nosy. Mm-hmm. Who's really, wah, 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 wah. Well, we we're just going to hear that now. In fact, I'm just to interrupt you to say they made a film of the horse's mouth. We're yeah. just going to play a little clip from that now, and then I'm going to say something about the film. Disgusting, I call it. How did you get in? Through the hatch. It's disgusting what they've done to your picture, Mr. Jimson. They've ruined it. I can patch it. It's the little air gun holes that are the nuisance. They've written names all over Eve, Mr. Jimson. 
Mr. Jimson's just gone out. He saw you coming. I brought you some coffee and sausage rolls. Don't they ever give you any homework? It's the holidays. If you want to get that scholarship and go to Oxford and get into the civil service and be a great man and have £2,000 a year and a nice wife and a kid with real eyes and open and shut, go home and work. It's nice and hot, Mr. Jimson. There's sugar in it. Mr. Jimson won't be back for some time. I'll drink it for him. Now go home. <laughs> so we, so I should say that that was Alec Guinness playing Gully Jimson. That Alec Guinness adapted it. Adapted it. Yep. So he plays the part, adapts it, and Ronald Neem, the director, tells a brilliant story about the, the, the actor Claude Rains had approached him and said, I've just read this book, The Horse's Mouth, I think it would make a terrific film. Hmm. And Ronald Neem read it and said, I couldn't get on with it. I, it annoyed me. I, I, two years later, Alec Guinness says to me, hello, Ronnie, hmm. I've just read this amazing book, The Horse's Mouth. So I said, and at that point, I thought, well, both Claude Rains and Alec Guinness are probably onto mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And in the film, which I think is terrific... And Ronald Neem said, we scratched the... His exact phrase was, we scratched the edge of the book. Mm. That's you know, sure. to, to try and get it in. But the paintings, the incredible paintings that are, do, that are in the, the film The Horse's it. Mouth are done by... The great John fr- Bratby. Friend of Backlisted, <laughs> the painter and novelist John Bratby. Mm. They are... Inor- there's an incredible scene at the end of the film and the book where Bratby spent a week painting an enormous outside wall. Mm. Something bad happens to the wall. Yeah. And they said, by, in terms of dealing with Bratby, Ronald Neem said, by the time we got to this point, mm. Bratby had lost his mind. Mm. He <laughs> stayed up for two nights to finish painting the wall mm. and then, quite somewhat the worse for wear, and then had to flee because he couldn't bear the knowledge that it was going to be... Um, not there shortly there afterwards. Yeah. Um, but, but Guinness based his, port, his version of Jimson slightly on mm. John Bratby as well. Mm. So you're, you're, he's channeling the book, but he's also channeling this real mm. larger-than-life painter, you know? I mean, it's interesting. The film was quite successful in its day, wasn't it? Short, the, yeah. It was shortlisted for um, Academy Award. And yeah. I'm just interested as to why the book, which was an early Penguin Modern Classic, and certainly when I... I was first aware of it when I asked a teacher to give me a reading list for the holidays. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yes, miss, could I have a reading list for the holidays? <laughs> and she gave me basically a list of great English 20th century novels. And I just remember, I'd, I probably read half of them over my lifetime, not, not that summer. I read one over that summer. Um, but Horse's Mouth was on there, mm. along with, you know, House for Mr. Biswas by V.S. Naipaul and things mm. that, and I just wonder why it's why, why it hasn't survived. What do you think, man? As as a sort of a, I mean, we we all really enjoyed it, and I don't know. I'd love. It's a shame in a way we don't have a a, a, a woman around the table to say to to to, to yeah. give a, a an alternative reading. But I, I Pamela Hansford Johnson loved it. Yes, she did. <laughs> I I I think we don't. I, I, I'm torn about this because I think publishing in in a whole patronises readers and underestimates readers um, and is often very apologetic about any challenging content or even a challenging prose style and thinks people it'll put people off and that's not true readers time and time again prove that isn't true but also I think the novel has has become phenomenally conservative 
and easy. The uh, novelists have uh, adapted to, a, to, to an architecture sort whereby novelists need, need to yeah. slip down like a lozenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best novels, the most interesting books, the books that stand the test of time, are the ones that don't and are tricky and, and gritty and not. Time and again on Batlisted, I've been expecting you know, lozenges. And you actually you get these spiky, complicated, mm. difficult, challenging, yeah. often by women, mm. in this case by a man. But it's fascinating. I, I read this book. It gripped me from mm. the first, the first. It's a cracking opening, the Thames. It's sort of mm. got that Dickensian mm. kind of authenticity. It's properly comic. I mean, and I think that's I, the I thing. I agree with you, John. And I think so, it's so rare to get something that's as mm. unbuttoned. And, to, you know, the, the painting scenes. There's a, the one early in the, in the book which is so mad. They mention about a painting. He's, he's thinking on, on his feet about a painting. And While you look for it, I'm just going to say that I'm reading a book by the mo- at the moment, <laughs> reading yet another Anita Brooklyn novel. Um, but this is I'm reading a novel. Well, I wasn't looking. There no, it goes. There it goes. I was reading another. I'm reading one of her novels, a novel called Fraud, uh, which I'm enjoying very much. There's a line in that where she says very simply, "The creative life is a law unto itself," and I thought that's so applicable to this book. In a sense, that's what. Jimson is, that's what Carey's trying to create with Jimson, the idea of the personification of the creative life force, Mm -hmm. which is lashing out in all directions when it can't focus on painting, you know? Um, Well, I think for those of us as well that make a living dealing with writers who who have fragile egos, sometimes torrential mm -hmm. power storms of imaginative, you know, um, ability that sometimes needs marshalling, sometimes needs keeping in check... It's an astonishing insight into the danger of being someone completely obsessed with your, yeah, with your, really with, your true. with your with your vocation. I mean, I find it, despite how comic it is and how silly it is and how exhausting it is to read, I find it I find it very, very um, soothing. I find it I, mm. I find it some, something that is missing in modern life that is that it, that exists in the horse's mouth, and that may, that may be a personality type, it may be a freedom, it may be just a pure energy thing. I think there's a the, rhythm the, the, in it. There's a remorse. There's a remorse. This is the word we've used, mm, but there's like mm. a relentless forward motion to mm, it. Mm, mm. You know, and as you were saying earlier, the way it, the way it, it ends is is tremendous. I mean, it's in a sense, ending. it ends, but it mm. stops. Yeah. Mm. You know, the sense of the life force beating mm. away, beating away, mm, beating mm. away. We we you know. I don't want to give away the ending. It's fairly Joycean in that respect, mm. I think. That, 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 that there's a kind of great last. There's line, a kind of the, the whole the whole last bit from when. when well, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but from the thing that he does, which is such yeah. a terrible thing to do, <laughs> and it sort of starts to dawn on him that he's done this terrible <laughs> thing, and, that, and that, that's such a comic scene. Yeah, her yeah. last line. It's, it's hilarious. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it, it leaves you with that sense that you, you've been exposed to to an intense performance the ramifications of which for you emotionally might be quite some time before you understand them. Like, it's a thing, this book, outside of itself. And that, that, that's what makes it... I, 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 love, I, I love the... I'm not going to read the book, but I've got another bit which I love, which is just gets you that thing of he's continually, greedily trying to find things to paint. You know, he kind of... Everything is that... Um, oh, God, that line of Joyce is about the ineluctable modality of the visible... But that's what he just everything is. He just wants to paint what he sees, what's yeah, in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Just then the beaders came in, Sir William and Lady. Big man with a bald head and monkey fur on the back of his hands. <laughs> Voice like a Liverpool dray on a rumbling bridge. Charming manners, little bow, beaming smile, lady tall, slender, Spanish eyes, brown skin, thin nose, Greco hands, collector's piece. I must have those hands, I thought. Arms, probably too skinny, but the head and torso are one piece. I should lead them together. It's almost like that. a kind of... Uh, yeah. 
it's almost like a sort of you can imagine it almost like a sort of mad Jack the Ripper yeah, kind yeah. of, you know. Well, it's like the raft of the Medusa, yeah. isn't it? That he's eyeing a bit with a, none of us are human beings. We're all just body parts that he loves, might use. Loves her arms. But he's like, lovely thigh. I could knock that around a bit. I could put a bit of blue on that and suddenly it's off the page. It's lifting off. I, I thought this was just a magnificent... I just thought this was a magnificent book. It, it's one of those books... I mean, I like many of the books that we do on here, but this is the one that I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, if, if we... If someone <laughs> listens to this and goes home yeah, yeah, yeah. or goes out and downloads or buys this book, I'd be so happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I realised I, I, there was a couple of projects I abandoned years ago, writing projects, and one of them was this kind of picaresque private detective who's hired to go to Suffolk, and he's pure gully. I, I, that's probably why I never carried on with it, because it was just gully Jimson. <laughs> I think there is a danger. You can sort of feel that, what, that yeah. sort of uh, rat-a-tat-tat sentence yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Well, you reading it just then put me in mind of that bloody awful grief is a thing with feathers thing that you took <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah. So bang, maybe, bang, Mike, bang. maybe that's what crazy it, you want, He you is the, he, that, that guy is the, is the carry Trump. to no jour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, tasty, yeah. Tasty cheek, nice hairline. Oh, I'll have a bit of that. Oh, putty beard like that. You know. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're reading from your book. That's but nice. We've got, here's Gully Jimson just bringing it round. We're always trying yeah. to find patterns on, on the, just slightly on the, oh, this is on the people. The people is just as big a, a danger as the government. I mean, if you let it get on your mind. Because there's more of it. More and worse and bigger and empty, emptier and stupider. One man is a living soul, but two men are an India rubber milking machine for a beer engine. And three men are noises off. And four men are a, an asylum for cretins. And five men are a committee. And 25 are a meeting. And after you get to the mummy, after that, you get to the mummy house at the British Museum. And the sovereign people and common humanity and the average and the public and the majority and the life force and statistics and the economic man, brainless, eyeless, wicked spawn of the universal toad sitting in the black bloody ditch of eternal night and croaking for its mate, which is the spectre of hell. That's so Brexit, man. <laughs> Make uh, Britain great again. Because this is from the essays. This is about pol what is a politician. His decisions affect millions of lives as his mistakes destroy whole nations. The private citizen who ruins himself or his family may suffer the anger of his dependents, but the statesman can bring upon himself the hatred of a whole generation. And if he is an honest man, this is exactly the risk he has to take. Michael Gove! That is why, that is why the easy judgments of history especially popular history, strike us as so often unjust. Before we call any statesman a fool or a crook, we should ask what problems he faced, what kind of people he had to handle, what kind of support he got, what pressure he withstood, what risks he took. But our final question will be still, was he an honest man? Brilliant. To be slipped into the suggestion box? <laughs> Theresa I, I Well, I think we probably... We've probably got to the end of that mother load of loveliness. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing book. We should say thank you to Max. Um, oh, I've got something else to say thank you to Max. Or can I just right. say thanks to Max? When I went to Iceland last year, Max recommended that I read two books, um, both of which were fantastic, which I've talked about on here, in fact. Uh, the Blue Fox by Sjön yeah. and, and Independent People by How the Last was published yeah. by you, John. And um, well, in I just thought it was lovely to say to everybody that this weekend on Twitter I was discussing laxness with Sion. Sure. Wow. What, what a world. Worth looking up, actually. It's great, great. He said some great things. Well, that's it. Thanks to Max. Thanks to our producer, Matt Hall. Thanks again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on uh, Twitter, at BatListedPod, Facebook, at uh, 
the backlisted pod page and on the page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk or .com now forward slash backlisted. Mm. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight with another show. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.